Well, I want to welcome uh, everyone here in the sanctuary, uh, those of you who are in Elliott Hall or in Room A, also known as the Admirals Club. We are so grateful to be with you, even those who are joining us online. Uh, some of you might be wondering, like, what, what's up? Where's the organ? What's going on with the organ? Well, apparently too many people were checking the masters on the Wi-Fi and the power went out. So you know who you are. I'm kidding. I, we don't know what happened to the organ, but we're grateful to be able to celebrate and nothing is going to stop us from celebrating because today the one thing that brings us together is this hope we have in Jesus and his victory over death. Not as a myth, not as a nice idea or this warm story, but as a matter of history. That 2,000 years ago, this carpenter from Nazareth, he was hung on a cross, nailed to a cross, and then three days later, the tomb where they placed his body, it was empty. And I want to talk for just a few moments about what that means and how that meets us in a deeply personal way. Now, if this is your first time here or your first time back in a while, you're sort of entering in on the tail end of what has been an odd few months. Because for the last eight weeks, we have been talking about sin, the seven deadly sins. And, you know, everybody thought, I kind of thought, oh man, this is going to, this could be like a major buzzkill. Attendance is going to plummet. People are going to, you know, feel beat up and just leave church discouraged when they get going. Thank you very much, pastor. Except it's sort of been the opposite. The other day I got a text from a friend and, and he said, Dunny, the seven deadly sins have been awesome. <laughs> Not that things like gluttony and envy are awesome, but it's this freedom when you see that God has set you free from sin. Now, finding that freedom begins with realizing deep down that we all know there's something, there's something messed up about us, that we've hurt people, we've done things we regret, that, that we've all got hidden stuff that we're ashamed of. To borrow a phrase from the contemporary theologian Taylor Swift, I had a marvelous time ruining everything. But see, once you can name that sin that is a part of your life and the reality that the sin in your life can ruin everything in this odd way, once you recognize that, then and only then can you step into this freedom. That you can come before a perfect, holy, loving God and you can say, I got nothing. God, left to myself, I'm a mess. I need help. I need rescue. And what you find when you do that and you turn to Jesus and you just throw yourself at his feet and before his cross, what you find is freedom. The freedom of knowing his forgiveness, his grace, his affection for you. And then you find that his life and his power, and we're told the very same spirit that raised him from the grave is now alive in you. And with him and trusting in him, you can actually live no longer enslaved to all this stuff that used to trip you up over and over again. Old behaviors, old addictions, old resentments start to die. You're freed to, to live for something bigger than that next pleasure fix or that next achievement or that next bonus. It's stuff that always ends up disappointing us anyways. Not with Jesus. He alone can fully satisfy. And you're not just freed from sin. Now you're freed to partner with Jesus in bringing his hope and his rescue to the world. You know, we sometimes have this sort of Sunday school veggie tales image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And it's kind of a wimpy version of Jesus who just went around being nice to people. Well, as my friend Scott often says, nobody gets crucified for being nice. 
Jesus challenged the, the status quo. He rebuked powerful people who were oppressing the weak. He stood up to Roman emperors. And then he chose this group of dropout fishermen instead of the seminary professors and the professional Christians of his day. And he built the mission around them. And it made a lot of people really mad. In a world where women were seen as inferior and a man's property and told to be silent, Jesus empowered them and loved them and called them to be his disciples and to lead. He took ethnic groups and political parties that just wanted to kill each other, and Jesus showed them how to love one another. Okay, that's the sort of thing that'll get you killed. He lived and taught and loved like no one had ever done before. Now, today, we're actually going to do what every Easter playbook says not to do, which is to try and tackle one of the most theologically dense passages in the entire Bible, all before brunch. Rule number one on Easter Sunday is keep it simple. Don't go deep. Don't deal, do with anything like super theologically profound. Make it fun. Have, you know, Jim Nance read the Easter story. Do something like that. <laughs> but then I thought about what a smart and hungry and overachieving bunch this is at Highland Park. And so today we're not going to follow the playbook. We're going to go after one of the most theologically vexing texts in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6. Are you ready for this? All right, the sunrise service was really fired up about it, but <laughs> here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Paul writes, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, what is true of Jesus is now true of you. And then if you go down to verse 14, Paul says this, For sin shall no longer be your master. Just like it no longer rules over Jesus, sin no longer rules over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And thank God for that. We'll end the reading there. Count yourselves dead to sin. Consider yourselves. It's the, the Greek word logizomai. Everybody say that with me. Logizomai. See, we're breaking the Easter rules here. Never quote the Greek on Easter or, you know, Christmas for that matter. Logizomai. It means to ponder, to give careful thought to, to let your mind dwell on the reality that you are now dead to sin. So that's what we're going to do today. And here Paul comes back to one of his favorite uh, phrases, we are dead to sin, which, which then begs the question, what does it mean to be dead to sin? And you may even be thinking about your day so far and how things went this morning as you tried to get to church and to get the kids and they're matching in very uncomfortable Easter smocks from Lily Pulitzer or wherever you, you know, go shopping for smocks and the tempers were flaring and the kids were protesting and dad needed to be here at just the right time so that he could sit in his favorite pew where he's been sitting since Paul wrote Romans, you know, the ninth <laughs> pew. And so it just, it wasn't exactly a sin-free scenario. So what does Paul mean that we are dead to sin? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that we will never sin again. It doesn't mean that. Dead to sin means we are no longer ruled by sin, controlled by sin, or to borrow Paul's own language, sin is no longer our master. 
We're not enslaved by it anymore. We don't have to do what it says because Jesus, who lived a sinless life because he was willing to suffer on that cross and to absorb the punishment that you and I deserve, we are no longer mastered by sin. We are free. Now, we may not live in the reality of that freedom every day, but we are free, dead to sin. You no longer have to respond to sin. We will, and we do, but the good news is we do not have to. You can look sin in the face and you can say, I do not have to give in to you. Lust, pride, anger, envy, greed, I don't have to give in to you today. Now that sin might whisper back, but don't you want to? To which I may respond, honestly, yes, I do. But I don't have to because you no longer rule over me. Isn't that good news? Before he died and rose again, sin was master. But after he died and rose from that grave, sin is mastered by Jesus. And so here's like the really good news of Easter, and this is where, this is where it lands personally for all of us. In the first five chapters of Romans, Paul lays out the gospel. And one of the themes of this gospel, which, by the way, makes Christianity unique from all other religious ideologies or philosophies in history, because in this gospel, salvation is received, not achieved. It's received, not because of any good things I've done or you've done. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Other religions are based on something that you have to do to make your way to God or to, to gain God's approval. You've got to follow a set of rules, obey a list of laws. You've got to be righteous. Even karma says that basically someday all the bad stuff is going to come back to bite you. And thank God karma ain't my judge because if it was, I'd be in trouble. Some of us maybe grew up with this image of God that you know, when we get to heaven and we're kind of standing at the gate waiting to get in, God's going to be like the guy when you're leaving Costco. <laughs> Do you know who I'm talking about? You've got 84 items in your cart, you know, crammed in, and there's a 27-inch long receipt, and he looks at it, and he, like, in half a second, he marks, and he's like, okay, you can go. It's like, how does he do that? I've always wondered, like, what do they train them to do? It's like this Costco speed-reading superpower. Has anyone else thought about that? And so maybe we have this image. God is just going to, I mean, he's going to scan through all the sins that I've ever committed on my receipt. And there's a truckload in that, you know, grocery cart that I've got with me. And it's a really long receipt. But what Easter announces is that forgiveness is received, not achieved. Doesn't matter what you've done. You don't earn the status of being dead to sin. You just receive it. It's a gift, and you can receive this gift today, whether for the first time or in a way that you have never received it and experienced it before. Jesus wants to give you his life and new life in him. Maybe you're not exactly sure what happened that Easter morning, and you've got questions. Or maybe you've been burned by Christians who seem more interested in religion and rules than they were in grace and love, and that... It kind of turns you off. Most Sundays, uh, my wife Allie has to take our kids to church by herself. It comes with being married to a pastor. And sometimes that goes better than others. One day, it did not go well. She was uh, walking with the kids to church, and our son Wheeler just went into full-on protest mode. 
and they were kind of walking up to the church and he was just screaming, I hate church, I hate church. Okay, when that's the pastor's kid, like that's not good branding. <laughs> and who knows, maybe some of you who were dragged here today by a relative, you were saying the same thing, I hate church. In his defense, Wheeler really likes church now, okay? It was just a bad day. We all have them. But maybe some of you, because of what the church has gotten wrong or because of the ways that Christians have treated you, maybe there's a lot of questions. And I'm so thankful that you're here. And I want to speak for a moment on behalf of anyone who's maybe wondered or maybe doubted whether it really happened, the resurrection. When I was in college, they had us read all these smart-sounding dead German guys like Nietzsche and Feuerbach, and, and they all just said, it's, it's just a ruse. It's fake news. Either they made it up, the story about an empty tomb, or somebody got the details mixed up. It's like the story I heard about a new pastor in a small town. Uh, one day, the local funeral director called him and asked him to do a graveside service for a man who had died, but who had no family and no friends. Well, the pastor was new to this town, and he got lost on the way there. And finally, he got to where he thought he was supposed to be about an hour late, and, you know, there was some shovels and a digging crew, and there was a hole in the ground and all that, but no hearse. So he went up to the hole, and he told the workers, look, this, this isn't going to take very long. They gathered around him, and the pastor started the service, and he prayed some prayers and said some words. Well, pretty soon, these workers were just getting into it, and they're saying, amen, and hallelujah, and praise Jesus. I mean, these weren't Presbyterian workers, obviously. But they got really into it, and it just became a worship experience, and this pastor felt so good about that and what he'd done with this great service until he was leaving, and he was getting into his car, and he overheard one of the workers say to, say to, to another, wow, like I've never experienced anything like that in this job, and, and I've been installing septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> right, and that's... Kind of like what some people think. They just, they got the details mixed up. Wrong place, wrong time. Or the reasoning goes like this. People back then weren't very smart and they didn't know about science and they had all these superstitions. So it was easy for them to believe this rumor that Jesus had risen. Or they were so heartbroken that they must have had dreams about Jesus and eventually after years of, of sensing Jesus spiritually, they came up with stories about how he rose physically mostly as a way of keeping the movement going, and that's eventually how we ended up with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So goes the argument. Well, here's the problem. The first accounts of the empty tomb aren't in the Gospels, but in the writings of Paul. Romans, which we just read from, was written 25 years after the resurrection. 25 years. Think about that. Does anybody else remember exactly where you were the morning of 9-11, like the details, who you were with, like how can you forget that? That was 22 years ago. Another of Paul's letters where he talks about the bodily resurrection of Jesus was written 15 years after Jesus' death. This week, Allie and I celebrated our 15th anniversary, and it got me sort of thinking about how, I mean, it's been 15 years, and yet I can remember some of the smallest details and moments from that weekend, even little details like how late we actually showed up to the rehearsal 
or the slightly inappropriate, very inappropriate toast that my future brother-in-law gave at the rehearsal dinner. I remember the song that we did our first dance to. I remember those amazing little chicken satay skewers that we served at the, the reception. I remember exactly what Allie was wearing. It was white <laughs> and stunning, stunning. Point being, 15 years is not a lot of time, especially with something as shocking as a dead man rising from the grave. Had you been there that first morning of the first Easter, you can imagine how etched into your brain those moments and those events would be. The fear, the excitement, the running, the astonishment, the surprise of it all. And 15 years later, Paul writes it down that he, the risen Jesus, appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul's like, it's only been 15 years. Most of us are still around. Don't take my word for it. You've got 500 witnesses to ask about. You don't believe me? Ask them. Hundreds of witnesses who would go on to give their lives, banking it all in the empty tomb. People will give their lives for a lot of things, but not something they know to be a lie. And this is where we find hope, not in a metaphor, not in hope springs eternal, but in the historic bodily resurrection of Jesus and how we need that hope. Given what so many have been through in recent weeks, what happened at a Presbyterian school and church in Nashville Less than two weeks ago, as so many of you know, one of those nine-year-old girls was the daughter of a beloved former pastor here in Dallas, of our sister church just down the road. The thing about Easter is it doesn't gloss over the realities of evil, the pain or the suffering or the heartache of death. There's no resurrection without the crucifixion. A guy named Bob Goff says that when Jesus died, darkness fell his friends scattered, all hope seemed lost, but heaven just started counting to three. Easter doesn't promise that there will be no crucifixion. It doesn't promise a problem-free or a pain-free life as so many of us are so profoundly aware of in recent days. What Easter promises is there will always be resurrection and new life born out of suffering. It may take three days or three months or three years or three decades, but Jesus will take everything the enemy aims at us and he will turn it around and for good. Even death is not the end. And because of what happened on that Easter morning 2,000 years ago, we know that Hallie and that Cynthia and Evelyn and Mike and William and Catherine, they are with Jesus right now. And one day we will see them again. And so as we bring this back to where we began, this gift of eternal life, it's not something you can achieve. It can only be received. And you can do that today. I want to close with what may be the best picture of this. And this is from a guy named Alistair Begg. He once asked this question, you know, if you were to die tonight and you get to the gates of heaven, what would you say? And if you and I were to answer that question in the first person, well then, we've got it all wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I did something, because I've done this. No, the only proper answer to that question is in the third person. Because he, because of him. 
Beg goes on to say this. Think about the thief on the cross. Jesus, we're told, was, was crucified between two thieves. And before Jesus died, he said to one of those thieves, today you will be with me in paradise. And Alistair Begg goes on to say this. I can't, he says, I can't wait to meet that thief one day so that I can ask him, how in the world did that shake out for you? I mean, you were guilty. You were a thief. You were condemned. You were, you were up there. You were cussing Jesus out with, you know, your, your other buddy up there. Uh, you'd never been to a Bible study. You were never baptized. You didn't know a lick about church membership. And yet you got in. You made it. How did you get in? Right, even the angel at the you know, gates of heaven probably had some questions about this. Like, what are you doing here? And the thief's like, I don't really know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I just, I don't know. The angel says, okay, wait, 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 hold on a second. I'm going to have to go get my supervisor. I mean, you just, you just wait right here, okay? The supervisor comes along and, and you know, says to the thief, okay, son, we just, we've got a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief's like, what? I, I've never heard of it in my life. Okay, well then let's just pull back a little bit. We're going to keep it simple here. What about the doctrine of scripture? And the thief is like, huh? I've never heard of it. Well, this supervising angel eventually, I mean, he just is scratching his head. What do we do here? Finally, he says in total frustration, well, then on what basis are you even here? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer. The man on the middle cross, Jesus, said I could come. His life his death, his empty tomb, his victory over the grave, and his love for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that like that thief dying next to you on the cross, the only thing we can do is receive. Thank you that because you rose up from that grave, sin and death no longer have the last word. And God, even in a gathering like this, we would be so bold as to ask for you to raise new people into new life through Jesus today. Would you come and would you move in this spiritual house? Fill us with more love, more defiant hope, more stubborn joy than ever before. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen.